Welcome back to Behind the Splinters, a limited series interview podcast about the making of sci-fi's 12 monkeys. This is Beep. In just a moment, you'll hear Cece and I speaking with prop master Mary Arthurs and co-creator and showrunner Terry Metalis about all of the 12 monkeys' iconic props, from the witness mask to splinter suits to the word of the witness. Enjoy! Welcome back so much to Terry Metalis, creator of 12 Monkeys. Hello! And we also have with us a prop master for seasons two through four, Mary Arthur. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Can you just describe for listeners what exactly a prop master is, what they're responsible for, and how you came to work in the field? Well, a props master is responsible for anything that uh, an actor handles, touches, eats, pushes. Um, and it's different from set dressing uh, in that set dressing, you know, chairs, tables, uh, paintings, all of that sort of thing. So, um, and we work in concert with the costumes designer, uh, the graphics department, the production designer, the art directors, um, and uh, really a lot of other departments, depending on if it's a hair ornament, we'll talk to hair. Um, if she's putting on makeup, we'll talk to makeup. So, um, uh, yeah, it's sort of, it's, a. I get to talk to a lot of people and, and collaborate with a lot of people. Um, and as far as, so basically read the script, break it down, budget it, find the stuff, make the stuff steal the stuff. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> however we can get it, we get it. Um, and, uh, then I hand it over to a team usually who's on set because on a TV series, I'm always one step ahead and prepping. Uh, so I have a great team on set and they manage it actually physically on set. So they will hand it to the actor, take it back from the actor, make sure that the continuity is correct with it. Um, and, uh, pack it away, uh, once we're finished with it. Um, as far as how I got into the business, uh, it was a weird sort of thing. Well, not really weird, but, uh, I was all set to become a lawyer. I did my BA, uh, at U of T and, uh, sort of got set adrift by some life things and, uh, fell into theater. Um, and theater, uh, really the only job that was available on that particular show was props. And so I said, sure, I'll do props. Um, and, not really knowing what it entailed, um, and did some theater and did some extra work on film sets and did a little bit of modeling and sort of figured out what goes on on a film set. And then one day a production manager called me and said, did I want to be the props master on a, um, movie of the week? Uh, and I said, sure. And, um, 26 years later, I'm, uh, still a props master. <laughs> Um, on amazing. a lot of other things. So there you go. That's me. <laughs> How about 12 Monkeys? How did you get to work on that? Um, well, uh, Peter Emick, the art director, he called me and uh, he said that they were um, thinking about making a change uh, in staff and uh, that was I available? And I said, yes, I was. And uh, I basically came in halfway through season two um, and uh uh, in consultation with the previous props master, she handed over all of the uh, things and explained uh, where they were up to in prepping uh, the rest of the season, the rest of the episodes. And um, yeah, I, I finished a show 
I think it was Suicide Squad uh, on the Friday, and I started on the Monday <laughs> on um, 12 Monkeys. <laughs> what a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we were so excited to talk about this topic today because it's hard to think of another television show where the props are so central um, to the story and fans have such an emotional attachment, right, to things like the witness mask. Um, um, can you explain to us just sort of big picture, maybe Terry, beginning with you, uh, the design process, how something goes from an idea in a script, for example, like we can start with the witness mask and then how you then take that idea and it becomes this physical object. Sure. I mean, um, I mean, it always starts in the writer's room and um, about kind of what the need is, but then it, it eventually just becomes the vision of somebody um, in the case of the witness mask. That was a tough one. Uh, we, I knew we wanted inspiration um, from a plague doctor, but at the same time, Plague doctors are also they're they're creepy, but they're also kind of goofy. Like the nose comes outward like a beak, um, and so we uh, it was uh, Carrie, our prop master in season one. We we had sort of mocked up a, a gas mask version of it that you we would hide in shadows. Um, but I always knew that wasn't really like the hero mask. That that was like some kind of alt, which you know then we later explained and. Uh, season three, when you saw the gas, that same gas mask on a young Ethan. Um, so, but when it came to design the real thing, that actually was just a sketch I drew in a production meeting because we couldn't find anything. And anything we tried to make just didn't quite look right or scary enough. So I just drew what scared me. And they went off and made that exact thing. Um, I still have it somewhere. I gotta find it, uh, or I, have a, I know I have a picture of it. It's a it's a sketch I just I just made. And so, in fact, Mary came on right when we had finished um, a version of it. Uh, and and the next question was, we knew we had these acolytes in Titan, and what would what would they look like? So we went down the road of like other masks and i'm like well what if they just had a version of the witness mask it's so scary and weird looking um so mary had to go <laughs> run off and make those but uh, you know a lot of the times just getting back to the root of your question is it's best if a, a concept artist can help um you know sort of solidify the vision like i can go and say i think it's this it's this it should feel like this but then a concept artist can go add their own um, you know, influences and, and what scares them or, or, or whatever it is. Um, cause sometimes it's very hard because, uh, for Mary who has, I mean, she doesn't just have all the cool props. She has all the shitty props too, which is like, we need a glass of beer here. We need a thing of this here. Right. So it's hard for her to just be like, to go off on a weekend and, and, and design something. So we, we would employ, um, some concept artists to come in. And then when we we would point to stuff and then Mary could go take those concepts um, and figure out how to make it, which is often very difficult, which I imagine like the splinter vest is probably the one I'm looking at it right now, hanging on my office wall. Um, That was, we put a lot of work into that. Um, I'll let Mary talk more about that. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, if you want me, I can go right into the Splinter Suit because uh, I actually looked back in some uh, emails last night, and uh, we first—I think I first got the drawings uh, on the fourteenth of yeah September fourteenth, and we eventually had a fitting, a look-see fitting, like a month later, and then you know, so it was months and months of back and forth. But um, uh, as soon as I saw the concept drawings, I was like, okay, I know who's going to build this. It's Jason L at Backbone. And uh, let's just get into what does this look like? Um, What's the fabric? We got fabric samples, we got um, buckle samples, we talked about how the electronics were going to work. Um, and it was just, it was, it was a process and a massive process, but each step of the way, um, I was able to show Terry things and he would say yes or no. And it was all very sort of, um, like the best kind of collaboration. Without a lot of money. I think the key, the key thing was the splinter vest needed to be this hero object yet. Um, you know, we were a low budget show. So it was like, how do you make something look really cool that, I mean, they were expensive by say, uh, you know, anyone's normal pocketbook, but as far as what a normal science fiction show would spend on a prop like that, I mean, I mean, I think we spent a fraction of it. So, you know, normally it would be like that whole center would be all electronics and whatnot and and be plastic or metal or, or or whatnot but we just we had to pick what our hero items were which is like the reactor ring you know the the sort of time machine light so we were going to spend a lot of money on that and then have to figure out like if it's going to be fabric in the middle which you also have to think about practical things like these actors are going to run around you know and that's those are things that that um Mary comes to is like, we need to remember that an actor needs to be able to do things. And then you have uh, Joyce who we talked about on the other podcast, who's going, I need this thing to fit underneath a jacket. You know what I mean? So everybody has um, is henpecking Mary about all their needs. And then I'm like, it's got to look really cool. We need more lights. We need things. So yeah. And it's, and it's the biggest thing. It's the most important thing, but there's no pressure. (laughs) Right. No pressure. And we need seven of them or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and they have to fight in them and they have to run in them and the lights have to come on on cue. Exactly. The DP is like, well, what kind of color blue is it? Is it going to clash with my lighting? I want to have it. I want to test it on a camera. So it's, it's, it's a lot and you're doing all this while you're shooting, you know? So again, like I said, Mary is, is trying to prep these things, but she also has a thousand other props that her department has to figure out. And, And some of them not small, like Eliza's watch, you know, that we'll see, early in that sort of witness museum and Titan and then won't pay off until the end of the season. So we need to know exactly what's inscribed, all that stuff. So yeah, I digress. Yeah, no, it, it was, it was, uh, it's always the props master's job is always like a lot of balls in the air and you just sort of get them all, uh, going and, uh, and manage it according to what is going to shoot first on camera. Were there any particular inspirations for the splinter suits? I mean, they really are 
just one of the unbelievably, like for lack of a better word, cool original <laughs> props uh, from this show. Were there any particular inspirations that either of you drew from just in designing them? Well, not really. I mean, the only thing we want, you know, normally the idea of, um, I knew it wanted to have that time machine like center light on it, right? But you didn't want to put it dead center because then it's an arc reactor like Tony Stark. So um, so now you're offsetting it. And so that means there's like controls on the left. So not really. I mean, it's just sort of um, a nerdy imagination, honestly, like just... <laughs> just like wouldn't it be cool if it did this and you know and then the you know uh the designer um the the sketch the our concept artist would be like add all the buckles and then um and then it's time for like it's not it's, it's not like there's no aesthetics for mary like mary will come in and be like this is a better looking buckle or this is a fabric that would look cool and kind of look like metal so you have all those uh those things as well um, you all mentioned the museum at Titan, um, which when you go back and rewatch it, and it's a museum of the props. The props in and of themselves are these clues that we can't possibly, you know, put together. And it, I'd love to just walk through some of those. I mean, particularly in season three, Eliza's mask, Eliza's pocket watch. Yeah, well, starting with the pocket watch, um, uh, I think – I didn't know at the beginning that there were going to be two of them. Um, so uh, I don't know if it was sort of, I hadn't read that far or I, I have a feeling that it was sort of one of those, like Terry came into my office and said, oh, you know, there's two of them. And I'm like, oh okay. yeah. The paradox at the end. Yeah, I don't exactly. Think either. I, I did. Yeah. yeah. So um, I found this amazing. So it was sort of like, okay, find the most beautiful uh, pocket watch. And I went to a, a local antique uh, shop in Toronto called Cynthia Finley Antiques. And I, I was looking at their pocket watches and I just found I was like, I have to have this one. This is like the lo most lovely pocket watch I've ever seen. Um, and uh, and yes, we can get it engraved and, and it can, it, you know, we can change the dial because the dial was quite plain and all of that sort of thing. But then it was sort of like, oh, and we have to make two. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I did have a great uh, team with me. Uh, it's just not all me. Um, and so I was able to... to say to my buyers, um, okay, like we've got to find something that's the same size uh, and in gold, and we need to find somebody who will recreate the top uh, of the pocket watch, the, the cover, um, in all its intricate detail. So uh, we were able to source uh, a goldsmith who was able to take a mold and do a casting and and create a whole new exact replica basically um and uh, and just i was sort of like okay what are we engraving is it exactly you know what what does it say is there a period uh is it you know are we saying her name are you know what is the font going to be um and so there were a few emails back and forth about that just before we got the engraver to like actually do the work and uh the pocket watch turned out so well. I just love it. Uh, it's like, it's actually one of my favorite props of my whole career. Um, and, uh, yeah. cause it's so beautiful. Um, and 
And then the Eliza witness mask or uh, her mask, um, we had that 3D printed. I had an amazing concept uh, drawing um, and we, I went to a, a place in Toronto called Proto 3000 and they do 3D printing for on a massive scale and also uh, for prototypes. So they were the perfect people to um, take the drawing and the concept art and give us a technical drawing so we could play with the length of the of the beak on it and the sort of protrusion of the cheekbones. And we did, I think, a few samples through them to see sort of what it would look like. Um, and then we had them 3D printed um, and then painted. Uh, and uh, it had to be light and um, comfortable for the actress. Um, and uh, it was just... I. And it had to not break when it hit the ground when she was attacked. Um, and uh, so we had several of those made just in case. Is Olivia's mask, like the witness mask, was that also created with a 3D printer? No. no. That was a sculpt uh, that I drove our previous uh, prop master crazy uh, with. Um, that was based on the sketch. And we had to sculpt that, then mold that. Um, yeah, so no, that's a, that's a trickier, well, I wouldn't say trickier, but as tricky, tricky process, um, but more traditional. It was rubber. Uh, it was a sort of a, a flexible rubber, uh, the witness mask. Um, and, uh, so there, and there were two of them. We'd love to hear about if there's a prop that in and of itself actually tells a story. It's the Ouroboros from season four. Yeah, we'd love to hear. I mean, you've got the symbols that in and of themselves tell the story, the symbolism of a circle that you can break, and there's a clue inside. Um, Terry, do you want to maybe start, where did the idea for that come from? And then we can hear from Mary about how she actually created it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it started in, in the writer's room. I know that we, God, I forget where the origin of it is. I know we wanted an object that would be passed down through time. Um, that was like an Ouroboros and was the actual, like you could look at it and it was the symbol of what, what the entire series was about was this unbreakable loop. Um, so, um, we, this is another, like we, we hired a concept artist, um, for this and the bell, the bell was another very tricky, uh, very, very tricky. Bell's probably the trickiest. We'll talk about that. Um, but the Ouroboros, um, we had a concept artist. We kind of zeroed in on one idea. And, you know, concept artists can make hundreds of sketches, and some of them are, like, physically impossible. Or it's like, if we made that, it's going to cost a fortune. So it was like finding this one. And honestly, I, I, this one was tough. I, I didn't know. I, I didn't think it was going to come out as good as it did. Um because it, it had to be tangible. It had to be real metal. Like we, you wanted to spend the money on it. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we got a design, handed it over to Mary. Then we needed to make sure the, the, um, the story puzzle pieces were built in to the built into the prop. Um, and so 
that's that was the writer's room like we had to you know figure out what's each symbol that you're landing on um i think i was doing that with sean and then there's like fun things along the way you're like i was like oh what if like there's one that's blank for when like um the but they the seers were blind or the snake was you know what i mean that kind of thing um so that's kind of it and then it's up to mary to take this drawing <laughs> you know and build something out of metal and a bunch of them because it plays over four or five episodes so yeah i don't know mary how did we do it <laughs> um well uh um yeah see she already has P- she has ptsd you can hear yeah, it no um <laughs> <laughs> well it was it was I knew that we needed it to be real metal. And so it was a matter of finding uh, a company that could cast it uh, in metal. And, uh, and we found that uh, company and um, we worked out how it would come apart. We were, first of all, we worked out, okay, I need, uh, I need two that really work. Um, so we need to be able to turn the ivory pieces in the center in a certain way and it would actually mechanically pop the um the mouth open so that the tail could come out so that we could get the rolled up piece of fabric as it ended up being it started as a piece of paper and then it morphed into an embroidery um and uh uh so i knew that i needed to make those and they were like the hero ones and i also knew that they needed to we needed to grab it out of the case and we needed to run with it and we needed all of that. So it's sort of like, okay, if we've got our hero ones in metal, then we'll make some also in, I think they were, I think they were 3d printed to a certain extent, but they weren't metal. They were a lighter material and they didn't open. Um, and I think there was one in metal that didn't open as well. Um, so, it was basically sort of trying to sort of figure out the work flow of all of that and all of the different people who would be involved in making it. Um, so I think we had one, two, three, I think we had three sort of prop building shops, uh, working on it. Um, because again, the monkey symbol at the bottom of it had to be the, primary traditional monkey symbol but we had never done it in 3d before um so i remember standing on a sunday in the studio at laird's a special effects shop with a with a sculpt (laughs) with a sculpture uh and i can't for life me remember her name but she was really great um and basically i think we were facetiming and um she was changing like the eye socket on the monkey and changing just like modifying in wax um the the sort of like the the nose portion and and all that sort of thing until terry was like yes that is is the the symbol but converted into from 2d into 3d um and uh so that was uh, it was amazing that I was that Terry was able to take the time out of his day in order to be sort of with me virtually and with her, and we actually were able to get it right, um, which was which it just speaks to how much he cares about 
about the props and about having it look exactly right. Um, which is amazing. And, uh, so that's one way to put it. You could also just say I'm a, I'm an annoying megalomaniac that no. wanted to make sure because I, I did drive you crazy. Cause it's like, there's little things like, like that, um, like that was a tough one. I remember that sculpt because it, actually anything to do with the monkey is tough because monkeys are kind of goofy, right? Like, yeah. and so just a hair in any direction and it's kind and it's kind of funny. So it yeah. has to be kind of scary. And so, you know, we had a tough time because d- different uh, sculptors or different people have like different takes on what a mo- like a gorilla versus a monkey. In fact, anytime we used, I think m- a traditional monkey, it was never really very scary, you know? So, um, so it's, yeah, it's, and, you know, eventually like, it's not, I, I appreciate that. Like I loved working with Mary and like, I'm hoping to immediately have a show that I can hire her on right away to do this all over again. Um, but like, I, I have a lot of guilt <laughs> for, for kicking things back like that because there's a lot, it's a lot of work went into it before it's presented to you. And like when it doesn't work, it's, it's a tough thing. You're like, I, it's not there yet, you know? Yeah. And, and it's part of my job is to push like, because I can't, you know, I'm not a sculptor. I can't actually physically do it. I wish I had all of those skills, but, um, it's, it's part of my job is to push the people, the artists that we work with sort of as far as I can without, uh, but still so that they can do what they do, um, to get it perfect. And, uh, that was one of those sort of situations where, um, you know, I just had to sort of be the conduit between Terry and the, and the sculptor and, and, um, uh, and it's exciting, uh, to, to get it right. Um, and, uh, then the Ouroboros became this beautiful metal working prop that I just felt that really sort of was super cool. I was just super happy when it, when, you know, we turned the ivory, um, and it was fake. It's, uh, we sourced the ivory. It's fake ivory that they, that, um, museums use for, um, restoration. And, uh, and I was just so happy when the, the mouth popped open, uh, on cue and, uh, we were able to fish out the embroidery, um, uh, from, from the mouth. So, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. It was really excellent. And it looks so beautiful as well in Prague in the display case. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> it's it's sitting on my, my office shelf in oh. its display case on its little plaque with its little plaque. Excellent. And pray that a Los Angeles earthquake doesn't fuck it up. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but, um, and also going back to um, just one more thing about the splinter suits. Um, uh, the fact that they had to light up uh was a whole system uh with a lighting system called the luminaire system and you run it off of a an ipad um and my i think my sort of heart attack moment was the fact that we had to take them all to prague and so i was i landed in prague i was i don't sleep on the plane so i was up we had a production meeting so i was up for like 30 hours or something. And, but my main concern was with the splinter vest was like, let's plug it all in and let's just make sure it works here in Prague. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think I was like, that was like, I could then go to sleep 
that night and, and say, okay, yay, that it works and, and it's good and, and, uh, we can run it. I hope everyone listening, because I know that we're just sitting here, the amount of work from so many people over such a long period of time that goes into like one object. It's just like astounding. Wow. Terry, can you, you all mentioned the bell. Can you walk us through um, sort of the idea you all came up with of Deglaka, which is a, you know, real life sort of Nazi conspiracy theory mm-hmm. about this secret weapon that they had um, and how we got to this incredible two monkey heads that fit together to create a paradox? Huh. Um, yeah, well, that was another case of, of, of a concept artist. In fact, I think the bell was the trickiest because there is any, there's a million ways to go with it. You can go super sci-fi. I, I knew that I wanted it to be a paradox that started a medieval time machine because for me it was always like, if there's a medieval machine, how in, how in the world would you power it? Like, there's no, you know, it's not going to be oil or like, like what, you know, how could you actually get that thing to start up that made sense? Um, and so one day I was just like, what if it's a paradox? It's like the DNA of our show is it starts with this. And then you have, you know, the idea is you have to bring it back to its younger self and start up the thing. So then it became, well, if it's, if it's a part of itself, then, um, it would be cool if you, it formed one thing. Um, and at some point we decided it was, uh, the monkey. Um, and, so even the concept we had, we went through multiple concept artists on this because there was nothing really that quite worked with it. Um, and I remember one day when, uh, I don't know if you remember this, Mary, where, like, we were all sitting in the production office in Toronto and Sean just decided to take a script cover, which had the monkey face and, and cut it out of paper and make this sort of three dimensional thing to see if it could work. And so he started cutting and then we made it together, put it together. But even then it seemed impossible that you could get, um, get this thing to look cool standing up one way and look cool doing it another. And then it kind of had to look like a bell because it was called the bell. Um, but yeah, we ended up doing it. That took a lot of work. And, and this, by the way, also had to be made in Toronto and shipped to Prague which is terrifying because if it gets lost or it gets broken or any of these things, you know, that's a hell of a journey from Toronto to Prague. That's like three plane rides and cab rides and things and vans and things and anything can happen to it. Uh, So that was a big deal. It was a huge deal. Um, And I totally remember the beginning of it with the concept because um, I, I remember John Mott, production designer, came into my office and said, come into Terry's office. And we had that conversation. And still, sort of, you were trying to explain it. That was like in the really early stages, and you were trying to explain it. And none of us in the room were getting it. Um, because we, we just couldn't sort of like figure out what was in your head. And then, so there were, I think there were several meetings about that and also like several concepts about that. And I do remember Sean coming into my office with those two pieces of paper. And I actually still have those two pieces of paper. Um, and, uh, and finally we knew what it was going to look like. Um, and, uh, and I took those, those, interconnected 
bits of paper um, to, I think it was, I think it was Patrick at Walter Claussen's and he sketched it out, uh, did some technical drawings on that. Um, and then, yeah. And then we, and then it was like, again, you go down the process of, okay, what is this made out of? What are the colors? What do the things, the symbols that go around the handle top part of it, you know, how is it going to fit together? We need multiples of it because there's going to be stunts, you know, they knock it off the pedestal. Um, it's got to travel. So I think I remember there were at least six or more um, copies of it, because uh, I just remember them all lined up in that church in Prague on the table. Um, so yeah, it was, it was uh, again, a, a process. But once we nailed what it should look like, again, it was very sort of it wasn't easy, but it was very straightforward in that, okay, let's, let's decide on the colors. And so we'd do color sampling and then Terry would decide, yes, it's going to be this and, or no, it's not going to be that. And then, you know, all sort of down the road, as far as, um, what it would look like, I got lots of great sort of feedback and back and forth, uh, with Terry on it. So, um, yeah, but I hand carried, well, not hand carried, but I traveled with all of the props. We didn't ship any of the props. I traveled with all of the props to Prague. Um, the first time we went to Prague, I think I had seven suitcases, and the second time I had nine. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and only one of them on the second time stayed in Frankfurt and had to come to my hotel, like an hour later. And I think it was maybe one of my personal suitcases. I don't think it was a prop suitcase. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, think about that though, that like Prague, the splinter suits played the Ouroboros played the, the bell played, Uh, you know, you know, it was an extraordinary undertaking to, to, to move the bulk of the major uh, items (laughs) to Europe. Yeah. Right. But then, you know, the incredible thing is, as you all are explaining all of, the, you know, uh, original taking s- an idea of something and then creating, uh, you know, these physical objects that either are supposed to look like they've been passed down through centuries like the Ouroboros or a futuristic sci-fi, you know, time travel suit. Mary, you also are having to source and find props for multiple historical eras, Um, from like medieval times to Western Victorian era, um, which I imagine, you know, in and of themselves, each of those could be their own TV show. So can you talk to us a little bit about balancing all of that with the fact that you're also on a time travel show? (laughs) Um, Well, it's it's just a job no it's um uh i love research um and i think that i you know i think that my history sort of has set me up to to be a really great researcher so um it's 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 fun it's like it's like give me a challenge and uh uh it's it's really um i love all different eras like i i'm not sort of I love learning new things. So I sort of have from like life experience and traveling in Europe when I was a kid and stuff, I sort of have a feeling for things, uh, old things and different eras and whatnot. But 
if I don't know something, I just like start researching either books that I have in at my on my shelf or on the internet. And I get a ton of photo references. I figure out, okay, do we have to make this? Can we rent this somewhere? Um, the great thing about FedEx and about the connected world is that I can pull things from a prop house in Europe or um, in LA or wherever. Whoever has like the best uh, stuff, uh, I'll try and get it from them uh, for what we need and what comes out of this out of the story. So, um, uh, yeah, it's sort of it's just it's doesn't get boring when you have to do you know Western. It's like okay, I you know we'll get the guns from here and we'll you know the holsters. We've got some great leather people. You know, we decided to do the medieval, uh, and luckily Prague had such great locations. So we shot, you know, a lot of the, almost all of the medieval stuff in Europe. So they have amazing artisans who my team in Prague were able to introduce me to. And I was able to visit, uh, you know, their workshops and, and again, go through that process of creating, uh, and fine tuning, uh, the, the prop that we see on screen. Yeah, but it's just a it's research and trying to get it as correct uh period correct as possible. And I love doing that. <laughs> we would love to hear about how the word of the witness was created. Um Terry, just take us from you all talking about this in the writers room to you know, one of the iconic images of the show. Well, it actually kind of came out of necessity where um Originally, Jennifer was going to find her name in like some kind of ledgery looking thing in that room. And, you know, we went, I remember being on set and going into it when there was like a, the room where it was going to be is just like there was something kind of anticlimactic and weird, like the fact that she would just open up a book or find a thing open that had specifically had her name on it. It just didn't didn't work and then i just i remember going what if there is this thing you know we knew that the witness had written all this down i'm like well what if it was like this giant document this like like madness on display that was like clearly like hundreds of years old um and i think like shot in like three days (laughs) and i was like so i called the writers and i said this is what we want to do let's write down Everything we know, let's hint at all the things that we know are going to happen. We knew James Cole was at the center. We knew, you know, lo- lots of lots of bits that are that are on it. Um, and let's tear a corner. I remember. Th- I remember knowing that I was like, w- let's tear a piece off that later on we can find out we are the ones that tore that piece off. Um, and so that was handed over to our art department um, and our graphics department. Um, and Rochelle Scarfo uh, was the uh, sort of genius behind uh, the word of the witness because it had to be put together very fast, aged, and then put on display. Um, and it, all that took like two, three days to make the first. And it was so cool. And it was such a uh, more cinematic moment when she walked in and it was like gigantic and it framed, framed Jennifer perfectly. And then – you know, once you introduce that, 
um, you knew that you were going to come back to it. Like one day you wanted to see it being made and whatnot. And that's where it got trickier in um, season three for Mary. Cause then we had to go make um, well, not just Mary, the whole graphics department, but we had to, we had to go make the early ver- versions of it. Um, and all of it's handwritten. All of it is um, it's all Rochelle's handwriting. Yeah. The, so that's the word of the witness. Um, I just that I I had to find uh, mailing tubes to carry it to Prague in, and so uh, I think we had seven or eight uh, maybe uh, copies, all in the different stages, like multiple copies of the different stages of the document, because we were actually going to have somebody writing physically writing on it uh, in inserts uh, in Prague. So um, yeah, they all went in a very large hockey bag uh, on the plane. So it was it was great. <laughs> There's two props that are sort of connected that tell sort of in and of themselves a great sort of character arc story, um, Mary. And I was wondering if there was sort of a story about how you either sourced them or created them. The butterfly comb that Cole gives Cassie in the season two finale that kind of picks up on that early, earlier line of dialogue, not every caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Um, it, it is a, a sort of a fan favorite and people try and find, you know, vintage versions of that. Um, and I was wondering if there was a story behind whether you all made it or you found it and it's actually a vintage piece, but then also the way you carry that through to the beginning of season three, where a butterfly comb is also a tool that Cassie uses, right, to take out the enemy. Um, so there any, is there a story sort of about that that through line, um, Terry, of sort of the recurring hair comb used in very different circumstances? And Mary, how you all found it or created it? Um, well, the first, uh, there's the, at the end of season two, you're talking about the thing, the clip that he gives her. Um, yeah, it's like Mother of Pearl, and it looks like it's vintage. It is, right? It is. Mary? Yeah, yeah. I found it. I found it. I can't exactly remember where I found it. It might have been at an antique store. Uh, yes, it was. It was. There was one of them, and uh, it was uh, vintage, and it was very delicate. And uh, yeah, so that was the story behind that. We did not make it. And then when you were referencing before about working with the hair department, um, what about making a butterfly comb that then is used to stab someone in the neck? <laughs> God, I don't remember. I mean, yeah. I knew, I know we wanted to do it. Um, I think you found one and then had to make a rubber version of it, I think. Yes, yes, definitely. When there's any sort of stunt involved, you make a rubber version of it. Um, and yeah, and again, you're just sort of like working with hair just to see like, okay, practically, how does it, how will it work? And then, and then, you know, here are the multiple versions of it so that, you know, when it, it potentially gets, you know, destroyed in the, in stabbing, we can move on to the next one. <laughs> it was one of those things that, um, like it didn't really sort of like sink in as to the importance of it. It's sort of just like one of those, again, like, okay, I'm working on whatever it was that was a big project at the time. And then, oh yeah, we have to have this. So it's like, okay, get that good, fine, done, move on. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Well, Mary, you mentioned at the beginning that you started out working in theater and creating props for theater. Were you involved with um, the props for Jennifer's 1920s sci-fi plays in Paris and creating those? Um, to a certain extent, yes. Uh, it was a it was a good collaboration between uh, myself and Joyce. Um, and uh, yeah, but I think if I remember correctly, I made the ET personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was funny. Um, yeah, uh, it's a it's a it's it's like super fun to just play with something that doesn't have to look perfect that can just look weird and have a little bit of sort of personality. Emily kept that ET. I know she has it in her apartment in Toronto. Yeah, exactly. We wanted to ask sort of about how you came up with all these symbols of a cult, um, whether it's at Titan or like later on in season three, but the necklaces were from season one. Yes. And yeah. same with like the tea bowl and all of that. Yeah, uh, the tea bowl. Uh, you know, some of those things might actually be property of one of our directors, Chris Byrne, Christopher Byrne, who came in and, and filmed. He would film all those really cool tea shots and the red drinking of the tea and the extreme close-up stuff. Um, he was just like uh, the master of like specific imagery uh going back from like hannibal into american gods he's just a a genius um and because he and i were so creatively on the same page um i would just be like okay here's here's what it's got to be and he would go help pick out all those t-bowls and things the symbology the symbols from go back they're aramaic uh and then they're like a slightly changed version of Aramaic and the monkey symbol was Aramaic for 12, but mirrored, you know, it's funny. You hide these things and you say these things in the, um, in the, in the show, but no, very few people actually remember that it's said said in there, but, um, but it is, it's mirror. Like, and I think Olivia explains it or somebody explains it at one point that it's, that's number 12 mirrored, um, both forwards and backwards kind of thing. And that's what makes the little penis man. Um, and so, which was like a joke we all had on set that I was like, in the finale, I've got to put that in there. Um, and, um, yeah, so that, that was, that was that. And then as far as the primary symbols go, that was a deconstruction of all those Aramaic ideas, um, done by a, a, a concept artist. Um, and that was a lot of work too, like figuring out how that code would work and how that would make sense. For sort of attentive viewers, there are some great models of sets of the show that the actors use. So in season two, you have Sam's model of the time machine that looks like something, you know, a a little kid would make um, kind of bored with with no one else to play with. But then in, in season four, you have Nicodemus's model of the weapon of the time machine. Are there story stories about creating either of those? Uh, <laughs> I don't, did we make those in Prague? The, we made those, the Nicodemus. The, the, yeah. We yeah. definitely made that in Prague. Uh, a fantastic marionette maker actually uh, called Martin. Um, 
And uh, he, uh, my prog team got him, sort of introduced me to him and got him starting to carve uh, all of that out of wood. And um, uh, it just turned out like really well. Um, he's an amazing artist. And uh, yeah. yeah, so so again, it was sort of like we're shooting here in Toronto and I'm managing my team here and then managing the team in Prague. And we're just sort of like emailing back and forth pictures and and um, with the like the figures uh, as well. You know, it's like the the sort of plague mask on that character should, you know, the beak should be a little you know, longer or shorter or whatever. And so it was just a lot of the back and forth of creativity, uh, with, with that. But I was so blown away by the Nicodemus set. Look, it just looked spectacular. Um, yeah, yeah. it really worked. Um, and then the Sam's model, I believe that was created in season one. Um, season two, season two. Okay. Yeah, but right before, before you got me. there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, it's too bad. Like that was an amazing piece that I'm sure just got trashed. Oh. Like, yeah, it it was so cool. I mean, there was only so many things I could take, <laughs> and that one was like that one. Uh, there's one thing I regret that I didn't take that Peter Emmerich told me to, and I was like, ah, I can't do it. And to this day, I kick myself, which was like the the mouth of the time machine was like a kind of a separate piece and i so like i could have put it on my garage wall and been very happy but i was already taking the chair and jones podium and you know i was like i can't you know i think amanda was like terry you can't have a 12 monkeys funeral home you can't take it all and i was like yes i can (laughs) (laughs) and so uh, but i didn't take that and boy do i i kind of regret it i'm not gonna lie yeah i totally just remember like the last day that we were shooting at the train station in Prague, you coming to the truck and and basically we were packing up all of the all of the stuff um yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah It's like yes. how do we how do we get this back to Los Angeles? <sighs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, Mary, you mentioned you know all of the sort of news articles, um, military history files, like an immortal, all of that that you all are creating, but then it ends up accumulating on the sort of bulletin board, right? The conspiracy board on set. And it, you know, is that it's almost like, you know, the props just keep getting added and that wall just continues to tell the story of the show. That was like, um, just the last moment I saw it was the moment that like, I was like, that's what produced tears. I thought the last time I would look at the time machine would give me the most, uh, uh, kick, but it was actually when I walked into the evidence room and it was like the whole story of the series was up on that board. And that just, that got me. Um, a lot of those pieces, those newspaper articles and whatnot are all the, those from the graphics department, um, where that, and they worked very closely with the, um, with the writers. And because we did close-ups, we like, we would write those articles, um, they were like real news. Some of them are fantastic. I was reading one the other day. I was like, oh, this is really detailed. Um, and because um, that's all I do in my free time now is just go through my 12 <laughs> monkeys press. Um, and so, uh, and so, uh, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's just, a, just a talented team in the art department who puts all this together. 
Yeah, it was definitely a full art department situation, and I really didn't have a lot to do with it. But yeah, it looked amazing. Um, Mary, as you sort of look back on this, just like listening to you all talk, it just sounds like this like incredible sandbox that you guys got to play in. Um, just, you know, historical eras, um, original sci-fi um, creations. Are, are, are there any other sort of moments you look back on where something was a particular challenge or you all were just personally really excited about taking an idea and then it, you know, becomes this thing that you see on screen? Um, well, I think that the, uh, the actually Olivia's medieval uh, mask, um, that was a, a journey uh, in the yeah. fact that we, we had a lot of time to start it in Toronto um, and Joyce was creating the costume, uh, sort of everything up to her face. And, um, we wanted it, we had a concept art, uh, for it and it, everybody loved that. And we were going ahead with it and, and we decided to, to use somebody, uh, in Toronto to make the mask. It had to be lightweight. It had to look like metal. It had to be lightweight. So we had to make it out of leather, but that looked like metal. And so we decided to, go with this leather guy who was recommended. Um, and I think he had something to do with, with Joyce and the costume and, and sort of thing. So we were just doing that and he wasn't really coming back with exactly what we wanted. And it was just back and forth, back and forth, and it just wasn't working. And that's the time when you go, Oh crap, like this is not, this isn't really our vision. So we took a leap of faith and we, cause it played in Prague. And so we took a leap of faith and we just said, we're making it in Prague. We're just going to get there. We're going to, I'm all like make my, uh, team there aware of the fact that we have to make this in Prague. Here's the artwork. Let's find somebody who can do it. And, uh, and we found a man called Chenda. And even though he spoke no English and we spoke no Czech, uh, I, we were able to translate through my team, who spoke both English and Czech, exactly what we wanted um, Chenda to make. And uh, I remember the show and tell in the props room in Prague at the office, and uh, and he made exactly what had been drawn. So um, that was one of those situations where it was just like the props gods were smiling on me and uh and we found the right person for the for the for the prop um so that was a uh an interesting um uh process it's a tough one yeah, yeah it was a tough one and also i remember and i just have to get this in the acolyte masks we um we all decided that they would be and this was in toronto we sort of decided it was like they're going to be burlap 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 right up until the time when like and so i gave you burlap acolyte masks and then you were like i know i said i wanted them to be this but i don't like them <laughs> so i yeah. said no problem let's we ripped off the burlap we were in the costume department we went over to the costume uh like their breakdown area we got some red paint and we just um we painted them red, right right then and there and uh and and that was like okay now look great. We know they and they yeah. look great and uh and so um it really i think spoke to how 
I feel that we were working really well together because you weren't um, sometimes in that sort of a situation, a, a creator can get very sort of defensive and say like, you didn't give me what you, what I wanted and all of this sort of thing. But it wasn't that way. It was sort of like, you gave me what I wanted, but now I've changed my mind. And I'm like, cool, let's do something. Else. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you have to own it, right? Like, cause sometimes you don't want what you order, you know, yeah. at, the, at the restaurant, you're like, Oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, or you had to set a different thing in your head that you didn't articulate well. Uh, and, and so they went and did exactly what you told them to do. And you're like, Oh, now I see where I screwed that up. Um, yeah, but yeah, but we was, were, we, we had a nimble crew, you know, um, we were lucky. Yeah. You guys were great. But I'm just saying that that's a very rare thing, uh, that I, to have happen. Um, and, uh, and so I super appreciated, um, oh, our collaboration. <laughs> me too. I know I miss it. We made so much cool things. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You guys really did. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk to us about this. This is, a, uh, you know, there's a lot. The props on this show are like beloved um, and fans are trying to figure out how to make them. So for themselves, so um, for cosplay and whatever. So hopefully this gave them maybe a few clues um, about how to do that. Um, Mary, so. thank you so much for your time. Where, where can people see your work um, coming up? Um, well, I, uh, uh, I guess the, the thing that's coming up the most is, uh, I did a show called Jupiter's Legacy. It'll be on Netflix in, uh, 2021 at some point. Um, and, uh, I'm working on the fourth season of Handmaid's Tale at the moment. Um, and that'll be on Hulu. And, uh, yeah, I think those are the latest things that haven't been shown yet. And, scary stories to tell in the dark go and watch that movie it was really good <laughs> terry thank you as always for oh, your time. thank you guys for doing this on our next episode a conversation about the 12 monkeys writers room with terry metallis as well as writers and producers sean tretta and christopher monfett thank you so much for listening and until next time we'll see you soon